0: Morning, friends. We are in uh, Luke 23 this morning. And Luke 23, right at the very end, uh, is going to take us to some depths, perhaps. It's going to have us face the question, how do you take the next step when hope seems lost? Uh, As Randy was mentioning uh, a moment ago, it's been a a heavy week. A lot of people may feel this morning, they may be coming to worship this morning, feeling in some sense, uh, like hope or a measure of hope, is lost. The, uh, we've noted that the uh, prayer list at Grace in general seems to be growing of late. Uh, bereavements, job loss, significant health matters for some, surgeries, coping as a single parent, struggling marriages. And then again, as Randy mentioned, uh, the news this week that uh, Tory Professor Dr. Alina Berry, wife and mother of twins, was in a tragic accident which led to her passing. Uh, Dave's the pastor of a church in Downey, as I understand it, and certainly lifting them up this morning as they meet and minister and grieve. Some of you students, I know for a fact, were among her mentees. And others of you knew uh, Alina as as a colleague and cared for her. So there's a lot of grief in that, isn't there? and grief is right. Uh, You may recall in John 11 when Jesus is moving with complete intentionality to raise Lazarus from the dead. He nevertheless is deeply moved to the point of weeping by the death of Lazarus and the grief of his sisters. It's not a wrong response. And so in the providence of God, uh, I am grateful for our passage this morning. I believe our passage was made for moments like these. It's a passage where by the time we get to the end, Jesus' own friends are standing slack-jawed before an occupied tomb, and the clock says triple zero, and the scoreboard says game over, you lose. To what shall we cling in moments like these? Again, we're in Luke chapter 23 this morning. We're gonna be picking it up here in a moment in verse uh, 44. We saw last week, Jesus is now on the cross. He's being crucified uh, between these two criminals. And today, we will see him breathe his last, followed by the experience of what we can call Entombed Saturday. Of course, you and I know the rest of the story, don't we? And Jesus himself had given his disciples prior to this, he had given them reason to hope after he had died. Confusing to be sure but He had given them promises. Nevertheless, there was a day in which Jesus' cold corpse lay lifeless in a tomb, and nobody was singing songs of gratitude for His cross. Let's read our passage. Again, picking up in verse 44, ask the Lord's blessing on a very sobering and very central part of the Christian life, and then dive in. Verse 44 of Luke 23. And all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home, beating their breasts. And all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. Now there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council, a good and righteous man, who had not consented to their decision and action, and he was looking for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down and wrapped it in a linen shroud and laid him in a tomb cut in stone where no one had ever yet been laid. It was the day of preparation and the Sabbath was beginning. The women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. On the Sabbath, they rested according to the commandment. Let's pray. Uh, Father, we come to this passage cognizant of the many griefs that were present among the disciples and followers of Jesus on that very first Friday. And we are cognizant at least of some of the myriad of griefs uh, that are represented among those who are gathered among us here today. We pray you would have your way with us, Lord, that you would marry this passage into the marrow of our souls in the ways that are needed, in ways that cause us to increase trust in Christ, to see him exalted even in our sorrows. We ask your blessings on this time in Jesus' name. Amen. So here we are, uh, we're in the passage. Jesus is on the cusp of death, Uh, he has refused to intervene and save himself, though he certainly had the power to do so. And as the story darkens, so does the sky. Uh, They counted time a little differently than we did, but basically what's happening here is taking place from noon to 3 p.m. And from noon to 3 p.m., which is the brightest part of the day, the sun's light fails. Luke also reports that the curtain of the temple is torn in two. Now, uh, both of these, these signs, these are major demonstrations by God of the significance of these moments that are transpiring on the cross. And we should mention, bo- both of these things really happened, right? These aren't, these aren't rhetorical flourish or poetic license. Um, the, the, the occurrence of the sun's light failing and the curtain of the temple tearing, they're in, 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 the, in, our, in our portion of the narrative, they're, they're significant elements that account For the centurion changing his mind about Jesus, and some among the crowd changing their mind about who Jesus was and the travesty that took place, the travesty of injustice that took place at his crucifixion. God, by the way, is the chief actor in the case of both of these signs. Uh, The curtain is almost certainly the one that was guarding the way of entrance to the most holy place in the temple, it's over 90 feet tall or was over 90 feet tall and quite thick. And so the tearing of that curtain couldn't just sort of incidentally happen, couldn't even happen uh, by, the, by, by mere human hands. So too, darkness at noonday. This is something only God can do. This is supernatural darkness. There's a variety of reasons that, that even uh, an eclipse could not account for this. One of them being that eclipses don't last for three hours. By means of these signs... God is giving his verdict on these events, right? Darkness, darkness is an omen of God's judgment. Throughout the Old Testament, it is often associated with day of the Lord imagery. You see this, for example, in passages like Amos 8, 9. There's a number of others, but Amos 8, 9 puts it this way. On that day declares the Lord, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight, it's it's an anticipatory judgment and and at least partially uh, finding some fulfillment in these moments of Jesus on the cross. The tearing of the curtain signifies that by Christ's perfect sacrifice, he has opened the way once for all time to access to the Father, it's a demonstration. Luke's gospel doesn't record Jesus' expression, it is finished, but the tearing of the temple curtain Is a demonstrable variation of that expression, isn't it? That his sacrifice is finished and accepted. Now, we don't have time to to look there, but uh, Hebrews 8 through 10, right? And just one one, uh, sample from Hebrews 9 on the screen, but Hebrews 8 through 10 does a wonderful job of expounding uh, Jesus fulfilling the ministry of priest and sacrifice and temple. Then we get to verse. 46, so that's Hebrews 9, 11, and 12, if you're a note taker. Then we get to verse 46, <clears throat> and we come, excuse me, to the only word spoken by Jesus in our passage. He says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And following that statement, he breathes his last. So what's going on here? Well, this statement, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit, is a quotation of Psalm 31, verse 5. And Psalm 31, verse 5, in particular, is the cry of what is known as a righteous sufferer, the cry of a righteous sufferer. This motif in Scripture uh, of the righteous sufferer is actually very significant. It's very common. It's very significant. And we can can tap into some of the the experience. Uh, The line of righteous suffering in Scripture runs from Abel, right? Remember Cain kills Abel in Genesis 4? all the way to the martyrs under the altar in the book of Revelation. And in between, righteous suffering afflicts and flummoxes and confuses the people of God from Joseph to Job to David to Stephen to the apostles themselves. Of course, none of them was righteous in the utterly, perfectly, flawless, sinless sense that Jesus himself was righteous. But the problem, the dilemma Right? The affliction of righteous suffering continues to be the hardest of all the tests, I think, right down to the present day and right here among the people of God at Grace Evangelical Free. We are buffeted when sorrows like sea billows roll, aren't we? In those moments, the enemy presses his most ancient lie, God isn't for you, that if He were, He would never have let this, fill in the blank, you know, this happen to you. You cannot trust Him. And we feel the sting of doubt and the flickering of hope in those moments, right? So we can be honest and acknowledge that. The climax of Jesus' obedience on the cross depended upon his triumph over the cruelest twisting of that most ancient lie. He's been We saw last week, he's been mocked and maligned as he hangs from the cross. Surely God would never allow this to happen if you were the true Messiah. He would never allow this to happen to his beloved Son. So, what does Je- Jesus' citation of this notion of righteous suffering mean in these final moments of his time on the cross. When he says these words from Psalm 31.5, um, Luke doesn't cite the, uh, the appeal to Psalm 22. Matthew and Mark do, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I, I, I think the answer is similar, Psalm 31, five, Psalm 22. When he says these words, he's identifying with us, isn't he? He had done so earlier in his baptism and now he is doing so again in his baptism into the death that our sins deserved. He's saying saying not only are you not alone in your suffering and grief, that would be comforting to some extent, but he's going further than that. And he is saying, I am entering into the outermost darkness of righteous suffering and abandonment by God so that when you face the final exam of your own death, you will not have to know its sting." See, by committing His Spirit into His Father's hands, He's effectively saying that those hands are the most trustworthy hands in all the universe, despite the lies being pressed against Him. Uh, Here's how uh, Peter put it in 1 Peter 2. He said, "When when Jesus was reviled, He did not revile in return, when he suffered, he did not threaten, but he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. goes on to say, he therefore himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. Uh, another author that I've enjoyed uh, reading a little bit lately, Bob Kellerman, wrote a great little uh, book on uh, walking with the Lord in grief. He commented on Jesus' final words from the cross in Luke's gospel, the passage we're looking at right now, and here's how he put it. He said, Our suffering Savior's last words on the cross do not end with God-forsakenness. No, we hear our Savior calling out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit only then does he breathe his last breath. Jesus lived every nanosecond face to face with his father. Theologians call it Coram Deo, living face to face in the presence of God. When Jesus felt God forsaken, he did not talk behind his father's back. He talked to and with his father. And when Jesus was ready to go home, he didn't talk about God, he talked to, surrendered to, and trusted in God alone. The story of the cross does not end with God forsaking God. The cross story ends with God the Son clinging to God the Father, and with the Father receiving the Son. Jesus's was the decisive act of casting himself upon the care of the God who raises the dead. 2 Corinthians 1.9. And he's able to do this because Jesus sees he saw more in his crucible of suffering than we often do. Why? Well, as Peter and Bob uh, share with us, he has his gaze so clearly fixed on the trustworthiness of his father. That is more certain to him than the lies and afflictions being pressed upon Him. Now, friends, I know that there are absolutely promises that you and I would like to have guaranteed to us, and we know they haven't been guaranteed. Things like your next application will be accepted, or you'll be married by the time you're 30, or your cancer will be taken away before your next scan. Those things might happen. They are okay to pray for, our lives are ripe with an abundance of good gifts from God, none of which are deserved, right? But at the foot of the cross, one thing alone is guaranteed that you can take to the bank, and that's that Jesus died to bear the weight of your soul. Now, here's the really good news. If Jesus' swallowing of the penalty for your sin can bear the weight of your soul on the final day, then his grip is trustworthy amidst your care and confusions on every other day that comes before that too. If if the grip survives the last day, it can sustain on every day. Well, from that point in our passage, the responses uh, begin to roll in. We get a centurion and the crowds and uh, the centurion, he, he observed all that's going on, the darkening sky, uh, the, the Jesus' prayer in the previous passage, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. I, I think the centurion's expression that Jesus is an innocent man is the fruit of that prayer. not that amazing? In verse 47, the centurion proclaims, certainly this man was innocent. And, and Luke, throughout chapter 23, has been piling up an emphasis on the innocence of Jesus. And so, and so in our passage, what the centurion has to say here is, is, is kind of the, the final word on the injustice of all that has taken place. It's a partial vindication of Jesus, at least, though we know that more and greater vindication is yet to come. By the way, just a footnote here, the fact that Luke tells us that what he said was certainly this man was innocent does not mean that he did not also say certainly he was the Son of God, as Matthew and uh, Mark record. It's, right. It's okay for Different authors, given their audiences, with different purposes, to emphasize different things. In Luke 23, the, high, the the emphasis, the heightened emphasis, seems to be on vindicating the innocence of Jesus. So, he said he said both. Uh, and again, this is an answer to the prayer of verse 34. Now we also see that some among the crowds begin to be or seem to be reconsidering Jesus, at least if not outright repenting. They, they beat their breast, which uh, a few chapters ago in Luke 18, um, when, the, when, the, when the repentant tax collector did this, right? Beating his, uh, that, that was a sig- signal, a symbol of his repentance and remorse. Possibly the same happening here. Then you get like the briefest, the briefest notation about the disciples broadly some observations about the women from Galilee, and then Joseph of Arimathea. So I wanna start with Joseph of Arimathea first. We get to know this guy a little bit in verses 50 to 53. Here's what we know about this fellow. Uh, He's a member of the council of the Sanhedrin. You see that in verse 50. Uh, Matthew's account adds that he was a rich man. Uh, Luke tells us in verse 51 that he did not consent to the council's decision to condemn Jesus and we discover that that's because he had been a disciple of Jesus. Although his discipleship had been in secret till now, John tells us, because he was afraid of the Jews, the religious leadership. Uh, Because he's a disciple of Jesus, uh, Luke goes on to say in verse 51, that this guy was looking for the kingdom of God, which is kind of reminiscent at the end of Jesus' life to some things we're told about Simeon and Anna way back in Luke chapter two, looking for the consolation of Israel, for example, at the beginning of Jesus' earthly life. But he, so, 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 so he's looking for the kingdom of God, but now that Jesus is dead, that raises the question that everybody's thinking, at least on that day, right? Did they miss it? they get it wrong? Are they looking in the wrong place for the king and the kingdom? Or are they still perhaps somehow on the cusp of what it was they had longed for? Now, <clears throat> we, don't, we don't know all that Joseph understood about the cross at this point. I don't, I, don't, I don't think he thinks he was wrong about Christ as king. The details had to be fuzzy. Uh, to to be sure. But in the previous passage, the thief had already been persuaded of a kingdom ruled by King Jesus that survives death. Jesus can encounter people in in that way. And and it's very interesting to me that that it's at this point that Joseph of Arimathea decides to go public in his allegiance to Jesus. After he died— which no doubt exposes him to some form of risk. Why now? Why make, the, why, why make the public declaration of allegiance now? In any case, he asks Pilate for the body, he lays him in an unused tomb, that's a fulfillment of prophecy, but the chief point to take away from the fact that Joseph lays the body of Jesus in a tomb is that Jesus really died. <clears throat> He's not in a coma, he didn't have a near-death experience, He's really dead. Jesus really suffered the penalty for sin. Had he not, there could be no salvation and there would be no need for a resurrection. Uh, In verses 55 and 56, (coughs) we get to know a little bit more of these women of Galilee who follow Joseph as the Sabbath approaches. We don't know who all of them are. We do find uh, in the next chapter, uh, some of them are named and uh, we're told that they followed Joseph of Arimathea to the tomb, and they see where and how the body was laid. Again, an important conclusion to draw from this. When they go back to the tomb on Sunday, they don't go to the wrong one, right? At times, it's been argued that uh, the tomb was believed to be empty because the women couldn't find the tomb. It's very clear here, Luke says, they saw where he was laid and how he was laid. They go to the right tomb on Sunday. And on Sunday, that tomb was empty. For now, <clears throat> after they see where the body of Jesus is laid, they return to prepare spices to further anoint his body. Again, come Sunday morning. The fact that they're preparing spices for a corpse means he really died. They are convinced that he is Right, they're not going to a celebration, they're going to anoint a corpse, as far as they know. <clears throat> now, um, one, of the, one of the elements not to miss in all of this is the scope of representatives that are gathered to Jesus at the foot of his cross right from the get-go. Right, you, you see a little snapshot, don't you, of the advance payment on people from every tribe and tongue and nation. Isaiah 53.10 says that as a result of making an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. And here are some of the first fruits. Who are they? Pagan soldiers, at least one insurrectionist, fearful disciples, and Galilean women, both of whom would have been viewed by their society as no-counts, but also the wealthy and the religious elite, like Joseph and Nicodemus, John tells us. What's the point? At the foot of the cross, all who will come to Jesus will be welcomed by Him and covered by Him. Past, standing, status, socioeconomic factor, Neither, neither, neither counting for or against you. Repentance and faith being all that matters. So here's the question for you. Have you come to him? Have you come to him? Again, our passage uh, leaves off at the point of grief-stricken, cold-corpse-occupied, entombed Saturday. That's where verse 56 says, lands the plane. Now, we know what comes next, but they had to live through it, didn't they? And even though you and I know that Sunday's coming, sometimes we feel like we're living through our own versions of Entombed Faith Saturday, don't we? Maybe you feel stuck in the middle of one today. You can feel the heartache Uh, of an entombed faith Saturday in the words of Greg Sitter's poem, I think that's how you pronounce his name, Between Death and Resurrection. It's been read before here at Grace. I think Eric read it a couple of years ago as part of our Passion Week services, but it so powerfully communicates what many of us may feel today, have felt, or will feel in the future. I just, I couldn't bypass it. So, if you're not in one of these places now, kind of Kind of put yourself in the mental space of this poem. Here's how it goes. Friday is when your dreams died. Saturday, or excuse me, Sunday is when God will do more than you could have dreamed. Saturday is the seeming eternity in between. On Friday, you miscarried. On Sunday, the child who meets you at the gate will call you, Mom. On Saturday, you are selling the crib. On Friday, the test came back positive. On Sunday, cancer will be extinct. On Saturday, clumps of hair clog the shower drain. On Friday, you were served divorce papers. On Sunday, you will be the bride at a wedding feast. On Saturday, you sleep alone in an empty house after he takes the kids for the weekend. On Friday, your child was arrested. On Sunday, he will be what you have always known he had the potential to be. On Saturday, you look through glass at vacant eyes, press your hand against the barrier, and whisper into the phone, I love you. Not done with the poem, but I am gonna make a footnote. If your particular point of grief revolves around struggling or straying children in one form or fashion, adult children, young children, in any sense of the word in which you would define struggle or stray, it doesn't have to be incarceration, though it could be that. We're going to have an event on October the 6th. You might want to put that in your, in your calendar, Friday evening, October the 6th, to pray for and encourage those who are facing that burden in particular. End of advertisement. On Friday, you lost your home. On Sunday, you will be handed the keys to a mansion. On Saturday, you are concealing your grief as you try to make an apartment feel like home for your kids. On Friday, your sin was exposed. On Sunday, the eyes of God will look at you and see nothing but righteousness. On Saturday, you wear a scarlet letter like a tattoo. On Friday, she died. On Sunday, you will see her face, hear her laughter, and feel her touch. On Saturday, you bring flowers to the graveyard and come home to darkness. Saturday feels like forever, but it's not. Sunday is forever. It's very powerfully put, isn't it? And that Saturday pinch is where the enemy's whispers gain traction. He's not for you. Be it the death of Jesus, the news of cancer, the pink slip, the promises of God seem to be under threat in those moments of failing to come true. So what are we to do when there is nothing that we can do? I want to return briefly to a concept uh, that I used from a a previous sermon back in Luke chapter 9. It's a a description of God's different modes or expressions of deliverance, three different expressions. I learned this from Ed Welch. I want to revisit it briefly with you because I think it is so fitting in helping us answer the question, what are we to do when there is nothing we can do? So he gives three descriptions. The first one, he calls it God's quiet care, which is God's deliverance of us before we even know we need it. That happens a lot, right? Every meal you ever eat that prevents you from not only starving, but even feeling the, you know, modest tinge of hunger, every sniffle recovered from before it progresses into something more significant, Uh, Welch puts it this way, How many times has the good shepherd fought wild beasts to keep us safe while we peacefully grazed, unaware of his heroic care? With this one, God's quiet care, too often we take this one for granted, don't we? We question God when this doesn't happen, but we fail to be grateful when it so often does. Deliverance Modality number two, he calls it 11th hour deliverance using the metaphor, you know, right? Point is late in the game. Sometimes God does his intervening at the last minute. Uh, This would include granting uh, Sarah's pregnancy only after the point that she and Abraham are well beyond childbearing years. This would include sparing uh, the life of Isaac at the last minute after calling upon Abraham to sacrifice his beloved son, It would include not parting the Red Sea until Pharaoh's army had caught up and pinned them in and there was no way out. Miraculous healings of various kinds, old New Testaments into the modern era. The third expression Welch calls God's deliverance after hope dies. God's deliverance after hope dies to continue the metaphor with the 11th hour of deliverance. I call this one 13th hour deliverance, right? 13th hour deliverance, it seems too late. Okay, sometimes, and this will happen to everyone here, sometimes God does not deliver at the 11th hour or any other hour prior to that. So the question that leaves us with is, why does he let us get to the end of our rope in difficult 11th hour situations sometimes and seemingly hopeless, it's too late, 13th hour, my faith is entombed Saturday, situations. Why? One, he's letting us feel the weight of our need for him, spending our resources and realizing they are not enough. In order for us to cast ourselves entirely upon the God who raises the dead, we have to become convinced of our own insufficiency. So when he lets us experience that, our insufficiency, However difficult that may be, it is far from unkind, contrary to the enemy's ancient lie. Secondly, and maybe most importantly, he's preparing us for the final exam that unless Jesus returns, we will all have to take for the final, not just day, but the final breath when quiet care deliverance and 11th hour deliverance do not come. And that, my friends, is what Jesus himself is doing in our passage. He has learned obedience through what he suffered, and now he is passing the hardest test. He's paying what to us would be an unpayable debt so that we can enjoy the fellowship and intimacy with God which we, uh, for which we were made. He is plucking death sting, and he is showing us what it looks like to commit ourselves into God's trustworthy hands when God himself is all we have left. You know, the more I've pondered it, the more I'm of the opinion that the picture we see for the care of Jesus' body by Joseph and these women, as well as their ongoing observation of the Sabbath, this may be a very small picture of what it looks like to seek and long for the kingdom of God on the bleakest entombed Saturday of all maybe it's a portrait of what it means to grieve while relying on God for 13th hour mercy. I, I, of course, there were glaring uncertainties. They lacked the clear hindsight that we now enjoy, that they would enjoy after the Emmaus Road discourse that's coming up. But for me at least, I just, the thing I cannot stop wondering about and, and haven't been able to get over as I've thought through this passage, is again why would Joseph of Arimathea risk going public now that Jesus is dead, unless faith somehow still flickered? I, like, unless there's a still some kind of flicker that, that I don't, I don't. Okay, so maybe, maybe, maybe he was moved by the exchange between Jesus and the thief on the cross, even if he doesn't fully understand it at this point. Maybe he heard Jesus answer the Sadducees in their denial of the resurrection in Luke chapter 20. Maybe he heard that Jesus called himself the resurrection and the life, or any number of other things that Jesus had told to his apostles. Maybe they trickled out. Maybe in their staggered state, these actions of caring for the body, preparing spices, honoring the Sabbath, maybe they are a kind of lived expression Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. And you will recall that Jesus honors that prayer. To be sure, we see more than they did on that first Saturday, but Paul tells us we still ourselves see through a glass darkly. We still struggle at times with not knowing all that God is up to in any given moment. So if you find yourself today neck deep, in the grief of your own kind of entombed faith Saturday, let me encourage you to grieve well. Just a couple of quick thoughts about that. Grieving well, I think, involves a couple of components. Number one, not denying your legitimate grief. You don't pretend it isn't there. On the other hand, not indulging the ancient lie. Neither denial nor indulgence. See, I think when it comes to grieving, the primary issue is not so much the intensity of the emotion as it is the direction of the emotion. In other words, in other words, does the, does, the, does the emotion of your grief draw you towards God or away from Him? The Psalm 31 verse 5, grieved cry of the righteous sufferer is absolutely a cry of grief, but it is a cry of grief moving in the direction of God at a minimum, with the belief that he is there and that he can be trusted to deliver, even if the timing and the manner of that deliverance are presently unclear. And Jesus vocalized the perfect expression of that cry, didn't he? Because his cry was definitively answered, we have every reason to hope as we run to him with our own cries of grief. Here's the, the neat upshot of all of this there's a beauty from ashes effect as time goes by of grieving towards God. And the effect is seen in how that kind of process enables you over time to extend the comforts of Christ that you have received in your suffering to others who are in need of the same. I I, I find that to be When I see examples of it, and I see examples of that around here all the time, some of the most beautiful expressions, painfully beautiful, but beautiful expressions of ministry when someone from the reservoir of how God has met them in their own grief then has words of encouragement and ministry to extend to someone else going through something similar. See, the good shepherd is not only in the business of delivering his sheep, but he wants to make ambassadors out of us all. Well, the end of the story in Luke's gospel will give us more ground for confidence in God's hands, so please come back next week. There is more to the story. But if you're in an Entombed Faith Saturday kind of place today, we wanna go to extra links this morning to extend the comforts of Christ to you as best we can. We've left a little bit of extra time for this, and I've invited a larger-than-usual prayer team presence today. Uh, After I close in prayer here in just a second, these prayer shepherds will spread out around the front of the room and the sides of the room, and I want you to know that they, they, they don't know your burdens presently. Maybe they know some of them if you're in a grace group with them or something like that, but they've been praying for you this week specifically. They've been praying for the appointments that God would arrange as you take advantage of partnering with them in prayer allowing them to bear some of your burdens and offer you uh, some encouragement. So when closing worship begins uh, throughout the final song and after as well, please avail yourself of this opportunity. These shepherds, two things qualify them for this. Number one, they understand grief. And number two, they know and love the God who raises the dead. You can bring them no burden too big, No burden too small. They would, I would, be delighted to pray with you over any concern that you might have. So let's pray and then enter into that time. God, we appeal to you to have your way among us in the moments to come. You know the griefs that have been brought to grace, evangelical free church today. You know the needs of our our hearts, the agonies of our soul You know the prayer shepherds that would be best suited to pray for and encourage those in the midst of these kinds of sorrows. Lord, we are thankful that Jesus did not stay in the grave. We are also thankful that his obedience unto death proves to us that you are trustworthy to cling to even when it feels like our own faith is in the grave. So we ask that Jesus would be exalted in this time and that the the people of grace who have brought their burdens would feel edified and encouraged to take the next step of grieving towards you. We ask it all in Jesus' name, amen.